0: Hello and welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. The latest in the series of papers that we are releasing now from roundtables that we had in the spring is a pair of fascinating papers on modern relationship relationships between technology and regulation. Different ways to think about how we regulate, what regulation does, and how it might be reformed to improve both. Modern life and the public interest. It's a pair of papers by Gus Hurwitz and Jeff Manny. Let me introduce them and our other guests, and then we'll discuss the papers. Jeffrey Manny is president and founder of the International Center for Law and Economics, a nonprofit, nonpartisan research center based in Portland, Oregon. Prior to founding ICLE, he was a law professor at the Lewis and Clark Law School. And while he was teaching, he took a leave to develop Microsoft's Law and Economics Academic Outreach Program. Jeff, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Adam. Happy to be here.
0: Our next co-author is Gus Hurwitz. He is the director of the newly founded Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska, where he also teaches on law, technology, and economics, all different aspects of modern regulation and industry. Gus, uh, thanks for joining us.
2: Great to be here, and I've got one word for you. What's that? Podcasts.
0: Podcasts, that's right. Gus, I have a question for you. You used to run, or maybe you still do run the program on space, cyber, and telecom law. I've been watching the show Space Force. Is it anything like that? Uh, I I surely
2: couldn't comment. I I still co-direct the Space Cyber Telecom Law Program, and uh, we we have watched with great joy and pleasure uh, uh, the show Space Force. Great.
0: You should see us dance. We'll all sing Kokomo after this. Um, And and, uh, everybody watch the show. It's really funny. Uh, We're also joined then uh, to discuss these papers by our friend Jennifer Huddleston. She directs the Technology and Innovation Policy Program at the American Action Forum. Before that, she was at the Mercatus Center. And in addition to being a familiar participant in our programs, she authored a paper for one of our previous roundtables titled Disrupting Deference, or disruptive Technology, another great paper on the intersections of regulation and technology that I really encourage people to take a look at. Jennifer, thanks for joining us today.
3: Thanks for having me here.
0: Well, we'll discuss both of these papers, uh, but let's introduce them one at a time. Jeff, tell us about your paper, Regulating into Uncertainty, Regulation as a Discovery Process. How is regulation a discovery process?
1: Uh, well. I, I would say the right question is, how do we make regulation into a discovery process? Um, we start with the, uh, the sort of traditional question in administrative law or of the administrative state. Uh, well, this is at a very high level of generality. Why do we need it? Why doesn't Congress just um, implement the rules that it thinks are necessary? And as you well know, Adam, there's a number of theories that have um, evolved over time to try to explain this. Um, uh, I won't go into it now, but um, fundamentally, I think the uh, assumption, uh, accurate assumption is that among other things, regulators have more expertise than than Congress does and greater ability to implement the regulations in a successful way. A lot of assumptions go into that, but let's just start with that. Um, the problem, of course, is that um, uncertainty is endemic to this process. Maybe regulators have more knowledge than Congress, but they are woefully lacking in the knowledge required to successfully regulate, especially over a long period of time, and especially to regulate dynamic industries that are changing over time, which in some sense describes everything that you regulate, but you can imagine some areas of, uh, of the economy are even more difficult to regulate. Um, so uh, our thinking is um, we, we start with the idea, the assumption that regulators are imperfect. Um, we are advocates for regulatory humility, uh, for the recognition that regulators don't know everything. Um, but we are trying to reject the kind of simple uh, um, binary choice between uh, regulate as if you know enough to regulate or if you don't know enough, you can 't regulate. And uh, what we try to set out to do here is to say, look, if we can identify that what 's lacking in terms you know, what sort of information is lacking that regulators should have, perhaps we can suggest ways that regulators can design their regulation. Or, or maybe even more importantly, we can design the institutions that govern how regulation is done, things like the APA and, and, and the like, to ensure that uh, regulations reflect a knowledge, that they are uh, limited in, their, in the knowledge that's available, and try to incorporate mechanisms to both create the information that's necessary and to incorporate it into the regulation as that knowledge is created. So um, under the current practice, under the APA, uh, procedures require agencies to provide a concise general statement of their basis and purpose uh, with the rules that they, um, that they enact. Um, so agencies have to explain why the rules they establish are correct. And what's, what's problematic here is that uncertainty is anathema to this process. In fact, an agency that says in its explanation of new rules, "We don't really know what the hell we're doing. Um, uh, we think maybe this is the best we can come up with," um, would undoubtedly be rejected by the court as arbitrary or capricious. Um, so our approach is to say, "Look, that's that's wrong. That's that's the wrong way to approach this. We should embrace uh, the uncertainty and approach regulation from, um, uh, as Gus would say, from a scientific or engineering perspective. Let's." start with um regulation putting forward testable hypotheses regulators identifying the metrics that they would use to assess the uh the success or failure of their hypotheses the the success or failure of the regulation to to enact the uh the outcome the desired outcome um and uh let's uh, there were too many clauses in that sentence, and I forgot where I started.
2: It, it's okay, Jeff, because uh, I'm kind of laughing to myself because uh, uh, I can tell that Jeff is kind of reading some f- uh, from the uh, latest revised introduction it's been, it's, to the paper. Well,
1: that's why I had, to, I had to credit you because because Gus just sent this like these words, and like hey, you know, this is really good. But I'll, I'll, I'll attribute them to you guys because I, all I did is copy them. Well, there's, so, one, uh, there's,
0: there's, there's one, there's one, there's one, uh, line, there's one line, there's a couple of lines in the introduction that I think really capture. The, the the big picture of this you say that um an important function of regulation lies in agency's superior superior ability to identify the limits of knowledge and to implement yeah. regulation in order that it both reflects those limits and can adapt to future information so often one of the critiques of modern administration is that it actually falls on the other side of the knowledge problem right that it that it is either stifling uh knowledge or that it's acting as though it has better knowledge than say well functioning markets do. And so what's so fascinating about this paper is you say there's a way to do this to actually help agencies contribute to the process of creating knowledge. Um, As you say, um, there's a tension in the administrative state, um, the, um, the tension between the recognized need to sometimes regulate And the uncertainty over how to actually regulate. And I'll tell you, not to. I'm here to interview you, not vice versa. But reading this paper and and the point you just made a moment ago, um, I smiled because um, the paper that I wrote for the Gray Center back and forth was even called the Gray Center. And when Naomi Rao was running it, was on uh, the challenges of measuring systemic risk. The fog, I said, the fog of uncertainty surrounding systemic risk. And the point that you made that if an agency were to just say, we have no idea whether this is correct or not, but we need to do something, that might not get thrown out by the court, but it's yeah. going to have a, you're going to have a real difficult time convincing the court of this. So well, let me get back to, to your point really quick and then turn to Gus. Jeff, you talked about, in effect, regulation, the process of regulation, almost serving the role of an experiment in, in terms of bringing about knowledge um that may maybe i'm putting words in your mouth but what what did you mean by that
1: but no i think that's i think that's a uh an important part of of what we're trying to get at here um uh, you know you, you can look at there there are some examples out there sandboxing may be the the most obvious current sort of analog to this uh and and by the way of course that comes with serious problems under the current APA and and uh rules governing regulations. So I, I can step back a little bit and just say, you know, part of the point of this, the, the, this paper is not, um, as I corrected you at the beginning, to say this is how regulation is—it is more to say this is how regulation could be, but that would require some changes to these kinds of structures. But I think the experimentation point is a really good one. Um, we envision regulation as, as I said, as sort of proposing testable hypotheses, identifying what information would be necessary to evaluate those hypotheses, um, and then um, that and that accomplishes a couple of things. First of all, uh, it acknowledges the limitations of of knowledge at the outset and says you know we're we're starting with something imperfect but the reason we're justifying starting with something imperfect is because um we know anything we start with is going to be imperfect but this version of imperfect is one that provides information subsequently that we can use to make the regulation better so you could imagine regulation having um or you know a, a sort of rule making having a, um, a sort of an initial regulatory approach, identifying um, uh, metrics for success or failure, and then even also identifying alternatives given certain outcomes. You know, let's say we, we impose some restriction on, um, on some environmental pollutant. Um, we, the expected outcome is uh, some metric of health increase um, by X amount health increases by a smaller amount. Um, and you can, you can then take that and say, well, given that that's now, now we understand better the relationship between the pollution and the health outcomes, we can adjust how much we think the pollution needs to be regulated because now we understand that. And part of that process might be also in uh, implementing the, the mechanisms required to, to gain that information. Um, and that comes in two ways. One is the experiment itself, like you said, the fact of regulating at a certain level uh, of pollution and then observing the outcomes provides some information. But you know, maybe you need a, um, <clears throat> maybe you need some mechanisms for measurement. Maybe you need to authorize um, the agency itself to collect data that it wasn't already collecting, or for others to collect data. You can imagine elements like that being built into the regulation. Um, and I, I, I'll stop more or less here with the introduction, but I, I want to just um, flag that I think a really interesting part of this is how that relates to judicial review of agency decision-making, how the, um, the necessarily less expert judiciary um, uh, under our model, I think can do a better job of evaluating the arguably more expert agencies um, Uh, if they regulate in this fashion that we're describing.
0: Maybe we'll get back to that in a moment, especially with with Jennifer here in the conversation. But before we do, uh, Gus, um, any further thoughts, just teeing up the the basic um, theory of the paper?
2: Yeah. So I I think it's fair uh, to say that Jeff and I are both uh, Hayekian classical liberals. And I start uh, uh, with that for a, a couple of reasons. First, um Regulation is important. We recognize the need for rules and law and we want them to be good and effective. And we have a lot of concern about a lot of contemporary regulation, especially as compared to the market. And one of the reasons that we like the market, I said Hayekian classical liberals, is the market is a discovery process. It produces information. It aggregates information really efficiently when there are unknowns it finds answers to them and it rewards those who are able to find answers to them. So that's kind of the underpinning starting point for this paper. We wanted to know, is there a way that we can improve regulation by turning it into a market like discovery process? And really that's the antithesis of how the administrative works today. Um, Jeff uh, highlighted this, but uh, I'll uh, highlight it in another color. Um, every incentive for the administrative state, when agencies are producing rules, is for the agencies to say, this is why we're right. This is why this is the right rule. And when you read through um, a, a rulemaking proceeding where they're responding to uh, comments that are critical, it always takes the same structure. Um, this view is supported by these commentators, these comments, that demonstrates that we're right. There were also these other critical comments, and in our expert opinion, they're wrong, we reject them, and then the courts defer to the agencies as the fact-finding experts, and the rule gets adopted. There's no acknowledgement of uncertainty or doubt or that maybe alternatives could have or should have been considered. And what we're basically saying is that's not honest. That's not how science works. That's not how discovery works. That's not a discovery process. That's not geared to getting us to the truth, to getting us to a better understanding of what regulation should be. So really the puzzle that the paper is struggling with is how do we turn regulation into a more honest discovery process?
0: And how would you? Uh,
2: so a uh, few different ideas. Uh, the simple answer is uh, dramatically revising the APA and changing everything about the uh, judicial review process. So uh, uh, uphill um, process, uh, we we know. Um, uh, I encouraging and I, I think that the simple answer is this would require legislation or uh, uh changes of judicial attitudes uh so in, in a sense this paper we have to acknowledge is screaming into the wind um, but hey uh, academic scholarship gets to do that ain't it great um uh new apa requirements or judicial recu- review requirements um asking agencies to tell us what other things did you consider what are the uncertainties? I think about this, uh, Jeff used the word uh, hypothesis testing. I think about this as being akin to the scientific method or uh, engineering specifications. Uh, scientists, the scientific process is driven, at least one understanding of it, by refutable hypotheses. Agencies should, in their rulemakings, tell us, um, okay, you've explained why you're right. What would it take to show us that you're wrong? What should courts look to to disprove the underpinnings of uh, uh, this rule? Or uh, from an engineering perspective, uh, when you're building something, engineers have uh, tolerances, specifications, operating temperatures, minimum, maximum loads, stuff like that. Um, and agencies should specify in the rules, these are our assumptions. If uh, it turns out that the future looks differently than we're anticipating, this rule's going to break and we're going to need to come back and uh, uh, review it.
1: Well,
0: there's a lot there, and, and oh, go ahead, Jeff. Go ahead. Jeff.
1: Yeah, I just I, um, since since we went on to judicial review. Um,
0: yeah, let's uh, talk about that.
1: I'll make the point that I was going to going to make, which which uh, is bolstering what what Gus just said. I think uh, we well, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't speak for you, but but to me, it seems like arbitrary and capricious review, for example, or or you know, review State Farm like review under the APA um, is itself um, quite arbitrary uh uh we you know the courts are told to look for certain heuristics that are supposed to indicate that the agency is um is doing a good job i mean it you know has the right objectives in mind and is doing the right kind of work uh to ensure that the the regulation it proposes is supportive, but in part because courts can 't second guess the agencies they certainly don 't have expertise and they don 't want to act like they do um it's a really uh it, it's a heuristic but it is it's so far removed it's so easy i think to um see how you could have far from optimal regulation in a system even with apa review um so one of the benefits i think of this kind of uh, approach is that it provides going back to the scientific method point um, uh, the decisions made by the agencies are much more falsifiable. It's not just that the agency says, we looked at this information and we think it's right, and therefore we think a way to implement it is regulation X, Y, and Z. Um, The the agency specifies the connection between the data it has and the the regulation it proposes, But, but even more importantly, indicates what new data would show that it was wrong in its first assumption, or what additional data would actually demonstrate that it was correct. And so by the time a court is reviewing what the uh, agency has done, um, it ha- in theory, right, it has the information in front of it. And the agency has given it a roadmap to, to undermine its own regulations or to support them. And the court doesn't have to second guess that the, the agency's already done it. They've applied their expertise tell the court, here's how you evaluate what we've done. I don't think any of that exists in regulation today. But so what you then have is a relatively easy system in which the court can say, well, you told us where to look for the data. Here's the data. You told us, you know, in some cases it might just be a simple numerical number. At what level can we deem this regulation to have been successful and below which it's not, above which, hey, you know, we did even better than we thought. That's all the court has to look at. Um. But it's much more concrete and and as I said uh, the agency's decision making process becomes falsifiable um, I think that's huge and the the idea so i mean the the a part of the discovery process and you know we try to analogize to the market, recognizing that the regulatory process is not a market process at all but you know the when the Austrian economists look at at the market as a discovery process, they often point to um, coordination among these atomistic participants in the market proves and price mechanism, um, and in, in a kind of very uh, um, narrow way, you can kind of look at um, that uh, the same coordination happening between the participants in the regulatory system. Again, not not mediated by market forces, but um, but incentives matter, and if. The regulator knows that the court is going to have a clear mechanism by which it can undermine the agency's decision. The agency, of course, has a, an incentive to, to do better in the first place, but also an incentive to pr- propose al- alternatives. It's not ju- The regulation becomes not just, um, you know, uh, this amount of pollutant or, I don't know, I should have come up with better examples to be prepared for this. But whatever your example, whatever you well, have always, in your Always say the- sulfur dioxide. <laughs> well, see, I really want to use telecom. I'm trying to avoid using telecom regulation because I don't want to you know, be too narrowly focused. Um, but, so the agency can say, look, we recognize that you know when, the court, when this gets to the court, having told them how to evaluate our regulation, um, it may turn out that, that you know, we didn't reach the objective that we wanted. So let's also put into this regulation, hey, if it turns out that this is the relationship between the pollutant and the health, the regulation changes. To reflect that, and if it's you know greater than the number we um, we suggested, the 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 amount of pollution capped goes down, and vice versa. Um, So uh, you have you end up having this uh, almost a hypothetical kind of discussion, anticipated by the agency between the agency and the court. And uh, again, the idea is that that you have higher quality regulation. But importantly, it's regulation that um, intentionally changes to reflect the information that the regulation itself produces. And that is a big problem with static regulation as we have it today.
0: We'll we'll get back to that in just a little bit. But I do want to bring now Jennifer into the conversation. Again, she's somebody else who's given a lot of thought to how best to calibrate a, a regulatory framework and judicial review especially for innovative uh, new technologies and changing industries. Jennifer, as you're reading this paper, what are your main reactions to it?
3: I think one of the great things about this paper is it really gives a set of reforms that would potentially incentivize that sort of regulatory humility that when we've talked about a lot of these new forms of governance for technology of things like sandboxing or um informal standard setting or even you know just the way regulators may be adversarial to or collaborate with innovators, this really provides a way to potentially create incentives for regulators to admit what they don't know, where you can then overcome perhaps some of that adversarial nature as well as get better regulations in the in the meantime. Um, I think of course, there are going to be some people who express concerns about whether or not regulatory capture could still exist in this sort of system. I think Gus and Jeff do a good job of addressing those questions, both in this paper and in the the later paper we'll discuss. Um, I also think that the potential revisions to the judicial review process as a result of this would have a greater impact in deference beyond this and that it would not entirely do away with just because a regulation is dynamic does not mean that it can't also be arbitrary and capricious at at the most extreme examples. Um, It was mentioned earlier, but I think this pairs very nicely with something like sandboxing. Mm -hmm. I also think a perhaps underappreciated effect of this paper is in some ways it has a built-in sunsetting provision and not in a way that just bulk renews or rejects all sorts of regulations, but in a way that would force regulators to really come back to their initial hypotheses and look at what the results of those hypotheses were and then make decisions as a result of that, rather than just a arbitrary timestamp of if X has or hasn't happened by 18 months or whatever going forward. It really under examines the underlying reasons for a regulation that then can perhaps lead to broader regulatory reform, not just even that particular regulation.
0: You've referred a few times to sandboxing. Uh, that's actually something else that we've touched on in the past. I think actually, Jennifer, at the same round table where you presented your paper, we had a paper by Brian Knight of, of Mercatus on what he called the sandbox paradox and sort of the both the benefits, but also the challenges of, of a regulatory sandbox where you leave space, where, where, where regulators leave space or experimentation by the industry. And then the, 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 the regulators themselves then are able to learn from that process and try to construct regulation accordingly. But it does leave space open for questions of regulatory capture and and so on. I guess maybe I'd, I'd ask Jeff and Gus about that. That seems to be one of the real challenges raised by this paper is is how does it avoid the, this dynamic process just devolving into um, the, the, the regulators' um, just sort of getting pushed around by by the the entities they're trying to regulate. I mean, doesn't a regulator need a certain amount of confidence in order to regulate effectively? Yours is a call for for a, a much more modest mindset on the part of regulators.
2: Yes, yeah, so I'll take a first stab at uh, responding to that, and in in a sense, I think part of the answer will start to transition us to the discussion of uh, the second paper. Um, but speaking uh, from the perspective of uh, this first paper, there's definitely uh, concern about public choice here. Um, uh, industry capture sort of concerns. Uh, this does require, uh, arguably greater interplay between industry and the regulators or creates a roadmap for it. It also, to be perfectly, uh, uh frank about it, uh, uh, as a first order effect of, uh, agencies putting in their rules, these are how you falsify our hypotheses. These are the circumstances under which this regulation must fall hey, that kind of sounds like this is a great way to attack and delegitimize regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is par- probably some of that there. Uh, so we would need to, uh, courts would want to approach this uh, uh, keenly aware that, hey, when uh, you acknowledge uncertainty, that shouldn't be a weakness. That, that's actually a strength. And uh, the hardest question is probably, how do we endo- endogenize that information? How do we feed it back into the regulation process uh, at some level, uh, this could be uh, something that goes through the same regulators, or it could be an uh, input into congressional oversight and congressional review of uh, the regulator's action. Um, one of my own motivations in thinking about uh, this paper and this issue, um, one, the, the original proposal for the Federal Trade Commission was uh, one which would only have the FTC have the investigatory power it wouldn't have had enforcement power. And uh, th- this is what has become uh, the agency's 6B six- authority, uh, the ability to conduct investigations of industries and report back to Congress uh, with recommendations for legislation or future things uh, to do. Uh, that re- that idea in 1913 for the FTC was uh, uh, rejected in favor of giving the agency more direct uh, enforcement authority. But I think that's a really powerful idea. Hey, agencies... Go study in an industry, figure out how it works and tell Congress, tell us in Congress what challenges you're seeing uh, and back that up with data. Um, that's a really powerful idea. Um, uh, so it, it, it's a two-way street, I'd say, on the public choice concerns. Uh, this does create more opportunity for more powerful regulation, but also uh, that regulation needs to be more circumspect.
0: Jennifer, do you have any thoughts on, on this issue? You, you raised it earlier, This this this, this problem of of of, uh, of of capture and 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 the the dueling roles of of um, agencies as both regulators and investigators.
3: I think we'll get into this a lot more with the the second paper, particularly. Yeah. I do think one of the very interesting things with this paper is how it would change the dynamics and the incentives of going to court on these regulations. Of you would have a very different question of. Both timing for challenging the regulation, how much do you kind of let it evolve, what the courts are going to do, um, because you are building in some uncertainty there. Another thing that the paper really does a good job of illustrating is how the current system basically does not allow or extremely discourages agencies from running any sort of experiments. They, they have a great example in there about the FCC and a rule that they tried to run an experiment on that was struck down by the courts. So to an earlier comment, this would really require a great deal of reform for agencies to be able to even try it or a, a dramatic shift in the way courts are currently interpreting certain administrative law standards.
0: Yeah, reading the paper, I was reminded of a a committee project I served on with the Administrative Conference of the United States. It was just in the last couple of years, and it was focused on experimental rulemaking, using the rulemaking process to help sort of serve as as basically as experiment within the agency. And a lot of the things that we debated and really grappled with were how you do that while at the same time allowing people to be treated equally before the agency, right? It's hard to run A-B tests or something like that in an agency because – if the A is treated a lot better than the B, then it's a little unfair for certain people to get treated one way versus another. The other is just the uncertainty that it creates, right? I'm all in favor of dynamism, except, you know, when we, we have the rule of law for a reason, right? And and we want sometimes law to be settled, regulation to be settled. So people can base their own sort of expectations on it and, and build their own lives around it. So that for me is, is the challenge of this paper. In addition to public choice and or, um, Uh, agency capture. And we'll get back to that again for the other paper, but on this one, just the sheer uncertainty of it. So how is, is this approach better suited to some industries than others? Are there some industries that would just be better suited to deal with the uncertainty? And is that maybe a, a, does that go to the life cycle of the industry, newer industries versus older ones? I'm, I'm not really sure. How do you deal with the uncertainty problem?
2: Well, I'll, I'll take the first part of that and then head hand it off to Jeff, uh, the first, uh, answer to the first part is yes. Okay. <laughs> so Jeff, how do we uh, deal with that uncertainty problem?
1: <laughs> you, you just answered 42 and now we have to find out what the question was. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I agree. The uncertainty problem is, um, is, it is a potentially significant one. Um, I think there are a couple of responses to that though uh, and they and they in fact even relate to the the public choice discussion we were just having. Um, one thing to point out, of course, is that and, and also to the the uh, due process points you were just making out um, one thing to note is that um, i don 't think the the current regime is i mean obviously it 's not devoid of any of those those problems, and there are even places in which we sort of um, just, uh, by virtue of how we measure or judge those problems, um, we're understating how much they're there. Uh, t- take the, the due process, the sort of fair notice kind of uh, uh, problem you raised. Um, uh, arguably, the only difference on its face between what we're describing, what we have now, is that that the what we're describing is more honest about. Um, if the failings or the the, um, the possible inequalities or or uh, unintended consequences of the regulation it's imposing. So by saying at the outset, you know we know that this initial proposal is imperfect. Um, what we are trying to accomplish here is to lay out an imperfect proposal in, at the outset because that will generate information that will help us eventually get to a better outcome. Uh, If you look at it from a more dynamic perspective, you could argue that there's, there's a um, much better due process, even more cert, potentially more certainty, but, but even more, you know, sort of fair notice. Um, It just comes a little bit later in the process, but when you get it, it's much more robust. What we have now is we just paper over all the, the, many aspects of current regulation that that may not comport with those ideals we focus on a couple of things that you know sort of that are that are low-hanging fruit the court has identified but i don't i don't think this makes those problems worse i think it acknowledges that they exist and acknowledges that the only way to fix them is through more information over time and we get a better outcome down the road but sure there are costs you know, on the way yeah, to get
0: that's it. fascinating. So I, in,
1: a, in a more comprehensive sense, it it's fair. It it's, um, it can limit do, uh, uh, public choice problems. It can do all of these things. You just have to acknowledge that. It takes uh,
2: another time aspect work. of uh, the answer is, of course, uh, there are different reasons that we have agencies. They serve different functions. Uh, in some cases, agencies are merely bureaucratic, technocratic entities that are doing some pretty boring. Uh, mind-numbing stuff that's just complicated and requires 10,000 bureaucrats to do. Uh, Other times, the reason we have agencies is, uh, or an agency might be delegated authority is because it's a politically challenging, unpopular decision that needs to be made and no one in Congress wants to be responsible for it. So we delegate to the agency and say, hey, go forth and decide between A or B. There's no right or wrong, but whichever uh, decision you make, half of the country is going to be pissed off. So we want you to make that uh, decision instead of us. Other times it's because uh, we, uh, for other times it's for uh, the expertise reason. Uh, We need experts to figure this out. And that's where the uncertainty issue is more likely to be most salient. Um, I don't know how administrative law can or should differentiate between these different purposes uh, that agencies have um, and how that should affect judicial review. Um, I would punt on the question and say, hey, it's beyond the scope of this particular paper. But you're exactly right, Adam, that uh, the concerns in this paper are mostly focused on the the dynamic uh, industry. Things are changing. We need experts to figure out uh, in response to change, what should we do sort of setting.
1: Can I, Adam, can I add one more thing on this? Just because it came up, as you may recall, at the, the roundtable um uh, discussion we had on this paper um i don't know if those are chatham house rules
0: just or, don't just don't name opinion. names
1: okay well so, someone uh raised this um and uh, the the um the raised this issue of um Wow, you're going to have to edit this out because somehow the word has, has... Okay,
0: hold on a second. Let's just... So so, what's the word you're looking for?
1: uh expectations, oh my God.
0: Oh, um, we settled started. expectations or...
1: Uh, we were just talking about it. Oh my God. Certainty? Is, yeah, certainty. That's
0: certainty. The word. Okay,
1: and, hold on. And Okay, yeah.
0: Okay, so hold on, we're going to take a... Just, there'll be silence, then I'll count you in and you can just pick up where you want to, okay? Three. Two, one.
1: So I want to add just one more point on the certainty uh, issue in particular because it came up at the roundtable discussion we had on this, uh, on this paper. So I've thought about it some since then. And um, I, I don't have an answer to this, but it seems quite plausible to think that <clears throat> especially in those dynamic industries, uh, the greatest source of uncertainty comes not from the... Um, uncertainty of the regulation itself. It comes from uh, relatively static regulation, and the world changes around it uh, in, in ways the agency either didn't care about or didn't anticipate. And so, at least with respect to that dimension, we can leave aside whether that's actually bigger or smaller than the, the problem of just not knowing for a long period of time exactly what the regulation contains. Um, in theory, the approach that we're suggesting here does a much better job of adapting to that kind of change Um, and uh, at least any kind of uncertainty or complication that may arise from exogenous change by its nature affecting what the regulation looks like. um, That should be much more mitigated, I think, in this uh, in this process. And if it turns out that that is, in fact, a larger source of of complication for businesses trying to, to navigate around regulation would actually reduce the amount
0: of uncertainty. Well, just one note in closing, then we'll turn to the second paper. Um, In in so many ways, your paper reminds me of a great book from a few years ago by Jim Manzi. He's a technologist. He he recently founded an AI company called Foundry. um, And and he wrote a book called Uncontrolled, and it's a reference to uncontrolled experiments calling for the improvement of policymaking through the scientific method of A-B testing. He looked at federalism, actually, as one good way to do that. That's a way to think about it. It's a way we naturally think about it, laboratories of democracy and and so on. But I think one of the real insights here is that if done right, it can be done at the federal level in some circumstances within the agencies themselves. They just need to go about it. In terms of the tools that might promote this, we touched on a little bit ago um, something close to retrospective review, right? You said right into the statute, right into the rules, how we're going to measure it and then grade the rule against its own standards one thing i've called for in the past i really wish agencies would do more of is retrospective review not even to test the old rule just to test the assumptions of the old rule in order to improve the new rules right if you do retrospective review regularly and you find that your agency is you know systematically reliably missing an issue or overstating or understating an issue that'll hopefully add to the modesty you're calling for. And the other thing I think agencies really benefit is something, especially where there's a lot of uncertainty is something close to scenarios analysis, right? Where you're not trying to predict the future, but you try to identify some plausible futures and think through what the implications of different things would be. Again, just to force agencies to think that's the real key here is just the, the process is, 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 I, I mean, the dad and me wants to say, you know, the destination isn't as important as the journey or whatever. Right. Um, it's, but it's. It's the point of the process of rulemaking really is as important, if not more, than the outcome. At least in the long run. Yeah, so, I'll uh, just
2: briefly uh, add. I, I know we need to get onto another mm-hmm. paper first. Uh, agree one hundred percent to all of that. The point that I'd make is uh, it's difficult to do those retrospective ex post things if you don't properly instrument whatever it is that you're trying to measure. Um, One of the struggles and frustrations that I've been having uh, recently, frustration might be too strong a word, but uh, talking to uh, folks at uh, the NSF on working on a few uh, uh, grants and uh, related things um, that touch on my areas of uh, uh, tech regulation expertise There's such a disconnect between how the NSF thinks these technologies should be developed and studied and uh, uh, implemented and how the agencies doing the policy side of things uh, think uh, this should all happen. This is all the federal government. Why can't you guys talk to each other? Um, There should be some sort of collaboration, merger, integration between these processes. And in a sense, uh, that's one of my own motivations uh, and perspectives uh, working
0: on uh, this project. Well, so let's talk about the second paper. It's titled Regulation as Partnership. Gus, I have to admit, um, when I think of regulators, at least when I was in private practice and and I thought of regulators, I certainly didn't think, oh, here come my partners. Um, How should we think, or or how can we think of regulation uh, as a form of partnership?
2: Yeah, so uh, this paper, uh, I will be uh, self-deprecating in introducing it and say, compared to the other one, this is a, a much uh, uh, smaller, simpler sort of paper, but it, it's uh, born out of exactly that uh, um, in the tech space in particular, everyone views everyone so adversarially. Um, the regulators, uh, I don't know why I say regulators instead of the regulatees. Uh, the, the regulators um, approach industry as the enemy. They're looking uh, to develop, and I say this, with a lot of focus on the Federal Trade Commission over the last uh, a couple of decades, looking to use enforcement actions to develop new rules. They want to make big names for themselves and develop a breakthrough new areas of the law by suing companies and getting big settlements and being in the news and all that stuff. Um, so the companies aren't, don't trust them. And on the flip side, Uh, the tech sector has largely brought this upon themselves by viewing Washington DC. This is the classic, uh, Silicon Valley versus DC, West Coast versus East Coast, uh, divide. Um, those rules are just pesky little things that we'll, we'll deal with after we've reached scale and, uh, uh, gone public. Uh, and we'll probably deal with them by, uh, hiring a bunch of lawyers to mire up the regulations for half a decade while we lobby to have the, uh, rules changed and, There's nothing productive in any of this. Again, going back to uh, the the starting point for the previous paper, uh, Jeff and I are both Hayekian classical liberals. We think regulation does serve or can serve some productive role. We need to have uh, uh, good rules in order to have an efficient society, and efficient market. Um, So really the uh, question of this paper is uh, how do we overcome this adversarial toxic relationship, um, that makes regulation, uh, collaboration between regulate, the regulators and industry impossible. And as I say that, I'm a public choice kind of guy. Uh, my, my, uh, spidey sense is just going crazy with, so you're saying industry collab, uh, uh capture is the solution. Not quite, but maybe um the the two things that i uh point to a, a lot in the paper um a t and t Bell Labs was the most remarkable research entity in the history of humankind. It was only possible because of regulation and because it was in partnership at a particular period in time during the mid twentieth century when it was possible to do a lot of uh, a discovery. Um, but it, it was a collaboration between government, industry, and academia. Um, and it led to really, uh, uh remarkable things. Um, so that, that's something that I always have in the back of my mind because it also led to so much obvious corruption and industry capture and rent seeking and rent extraction. Yet at the same time, we wouldn't have the modern world, but for that collaboration.
0: I mean, AT&T story as a whole especially through the 20th century, right? It's it's, it's not exactly a regulatory success story, um, but it, focusing on Bell Labs in particular is, is what you're getting at. Right, exactly. Uh, I have to, but by, by sheer coincidence, I was listening to a podcast interview this morning with Benedict Evans, Ben Evans. He used to be at Andreessen Horowitz. He's a technologist and he was on the Analyze Asia podcast talking about his view of technology and regulation. And uh, a line jumped out at me. He referred to, Companies dealing with the United States and China and other governments and and he referred to the relationship as partners, you know why would we want to partner with this country rather than that country and It really sort of jarred me and I, it hadn 't even occurred to me that we were yet yeah, that we were taping the podcast on that very topic in the afternoon. I was just listening to it while I was doing other things, and it occurred to me that yeah, I suppose that oftentimes especially for for tech companies with a global reach, they see governments both as markets but also in some ways they have to see them as as partners. For better or for worse, and obviously your paper is hoping for the better. Um, Jeff, do you have any, any thoughts on this? What, what would regulation as partnership look like in a successful case?
1: Well, I, I don't know. I don't know that I can answer that. Um, I'll, I'll demur as Gus did in the last one and say, you know, that's that's beyond the scope of this paper uh to, to oh, it's central like to the paper. No, no. Well, <laughs> so, right, you, 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 okay, you explain exactly what it would look like. I mean, the point is that that I I think in part, um, uh, I can answer your question this way: say that the one of the important, um, one of the, it goes back to the earlier paper. One of the important benefits of collaboration, and the reason uh, Gus was sort of jokingly saying, you know, maybe a capture model is actually. Optimal here um, is, of course, the availability of information. And, uh, um, you know, I, I freely admit, and this is why I demurred on your prior question the public choice problems, I think, are really huge here. And I don't think I have an answer. Maybe Gus thinks he does. I think that that requires sort of some more thinking. But they are a cost that comes with the possibility of massively greater information exchange and massively. Better regulation that isn't just better for you know a specific industry participant who thinks it can get regulation that helps it and raises costs for its rivals, um, but that you know actually uh, enables the the regulator, assuming the regulator is actually socially minded, which is of course not always the case, um, uh, to you know to do a better job. Um, so the trick, this is why I don't think I have an answer to your question. The trick is to Find a way to ensure that the the industry participants have more to gain from providing information that they would normally not provide for fear that it would lead to um, an ability of the regulator in an adversarial kind of setting to harm them. To provide them an incentive to you know, exchange that information, help the regulator do a better job without raising these the public choice fears. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I mean. Maybe Gus has thought about it more than I have, and has a real answer to that. I think, in a way, when he says this paper is simpler, it's because that kind of the paper is sort of pointing out the importance and value of that, not saying and here's how you get there. But maybe Gus.
0: Before Gus, before Gus jumps in, I do want let's, let's let Jennifer get her thoughts on this on the table, and then Gus can sort of react to to all of this. Well,
2: I, actually, what I do is feed Jeff the answer that he should have given.
0: No. So. <laughs>
1: But if only you'd feed it to me uh, in a back channel, I could just give it and pretend that it was mine.
0: You know, it's, it's, it's ironically, you two are, are arguing in a discussion about partnership. This is wonderful. Um, <laughs> Jennifer, go ahead.
3: I think that regulatory capture, when we hear partnership, is one of those things that just immediately red flags go up of, is this something that's going to go awry? Bell Labs was mentioned earlier, but I think there's a much more recent example in some cases that can be illustrative of how this can work in a successful way. And that has a lot to do with transportation innovation, particularly around sharing economy, as well as around autonomous vehicles. We've seen with the rise of micromobility of these dockless scooters, that we've had a couple of different reactions, particularly at the state and local level, from re- regulators on how to deal with this, in part after what they learned with Uber and Lyft and kind of the the first wave of, of ride sharing. In some cases, the regulatory response was very heavy-handed, very top-down, very much of kind of seemed to be a lesson of we can't allow any experimentation or innovation to come in or then the people will want it in a, the Genie will be out of the bottle and we'll never get it back in and get it regulated. On the other hand, some forward-thinking regulators and cities seem to approach it from the idea of this is a beneficial innovation. This is something that clearly consumers want. We're not going to stop it. Let's work with these innovators to come up with solutions to problems that we're foreseeing, things like parking, things like safety, things like bike lanes to work with them to come up with a solution that does not require that top heavy regulation, but instead works with these leaders to, to find something that solves this consumer need and has a better understanding of how these devices can be integrated. But we as regulators have a way of voicing our concerns and innovators have a way of saying, no, no, that's not really a concern because of X. When it comes to the regulatory capture element, I think where you often see that occurring even in these solutions is once you start capping which innovators can come to the table. Once you start saying, we're only going to allow three of these ride-sharing companies in, or we're only going to allow three micro mobility companies in or, or things like that, then it very much becomes about trying to exclude your competitor from getting into the sandbox or getting into the the regulatory conversation instead. So to me that's a, a kind of more a, a very simple way of overcoming the the regulatory capture element. And in some ways you can even have these type of of program structure in a way that says if it does not fit the existing co- guidelines, come talk to us. These guidelines are are suggestions, but we're open to to changes and things like that and again, on a state and local level as well as with some of the soft law on a on a federal level around autonomous vehicles, there does seem to be a way to do this and an awareness that, again, of that regulatory humility that recognizes that the innovators may have solutions to these problems that we wouldn't think about from the nature of having been involved in the development of these products.
0: So in in there, especially is this issue of federalism, right? By on, on issues where either states or localities really are taking the lead, Maybe we can be more comfortable with regulation as partnership because we know at least there will be competition among states and localities, and that might mitigate some of these issues. Gus, what do you think of all this?
2: So, uh, to uh, uh, responding to Jennifer's uh, points uh, first, I, I think that that's exactly right. And one of the things that it highlights, um, uh, what I would say to the regulatory capture of public choice concerns uh, that the paper, I think, legitimately does raise um, is uh this idea of regulation of, as partnership doesn't necessarily make these more uh, substantial. Um, I think that uh, uh, the effect that it has on the public choice concerns is to change their locus, change where they occur. So it could be instead of they occur within the market, they occur for the market. It's a, a gateway uh, point where an entry point where they occur as opposed to once we're in the market. Um Taking a step back, uh, I should be uh more uh perhaps substantive in uh, the analytical um, uh, uh, approach taken in the paper and actually what it what it actually says so it's not uh, uh I, I present it as kind of a kumbaya ish uh, nirvana fallacy uh invoking why can't we all just get a long approach to regulation? uh that's not what the paper ar- argues obviously that uh, uh is a nirvana fallacy and that's not how any of this uh would uh or necessarily should work um uh the paper looks to the evolving literature on public private partnerships uh that's been developing over the past uh 20 or 30 years uh public private partnerships really started to uh grow in popularity in the 1980s uh, and into the 1990s and there's been a real explosion in research into what makes them work, what makes them not work over the last uh, uh, 20 years or so. And this is still a pretty young area of research. But the uh, two things I point to and rely on most heavily in the paper, um, first is the idea of uh, relational contracting um, and uh, really uh a game theoretic approach to how we structure public-private partnerships where we structure these arrangements as multi-stage games where uh, there are incentive-aligned success criteria uh, at each stage. So uh, the regulators have incentives to see uh, the industry succeed and the industry has incentives to see the regulations succeed um, that could have uh, endemic uh, public choice concerns, absolutely. Uh, they're colluding to see each other succeed um, but, uh, it also, uh, uh, can be a more productive approach to regulation. Uh, the other thing that I, uh, point to and discuss in the paper is, of course, uh, Eleanor Ostrom's work on governance, uh, which is very much, uh, uh, focused on how these different governance structures can work. A lot of relational contracting aspects in a lot of her, uh, work in this area. Um, and uh, the the most basic insight there is, hey, if we can find a way to work uh, uh, as partners here, we can get much better results than we can get in a purely adversarial context. And in fact, in the adversarial context, we're, in, we're a tragedy of the commons, um, and we're going to be in the worst of all possible worlds, possibly. So that that's more of the intellectual uh, uh, playpen that I'm operating in in this paper. Uh, working with some of those ideas.
0: It seems to me that maybe the area of modern administration that comes closest to partnership for better and for worse is supervision of financial institutions, right? It's a, it's a a much more ongoing dialogue between the regulator and the regulated, obviously real problems. And we saw some of that in the financial crisis. And also um, you, you see in, in supervisory relationships, real questions about when the supervision ends, that dialogue ends and the enforcement starts and there are real problems, but there might be something useful to you guys there. Uh, Jennifer, any closing thoughts on these two papers before we turn back to Gus and Jeff for a final thought?
3: Just to echo what was said earlier, I think they're both really great papers that really add something to the literature on how dynamic regulation can play a role in dynamic industries and how we're seeing these changes both in regulatory mechanisms as well as in the industries that are are dealing with these problems and that there that there are solutions and ways of improving regulation that it's not a, a black and white either or but that there is kind of a, a third way that that enables improvement in a market market driven market focused way
0: you when I introduced Jennifer, I should have said, in addition to her the paper that she happened to write for for this center, uh, the writing that she's done over the years, articles she's written and co-written on what she referred to as soft law, are are really fascinating and enlightening, and I think highly, highly relevant to these sorts of discussions. So I'd encourage our listeners to look for what uh, Jennifer Huddleston has been writing on soft law. Gus, Jeff, any concluding thoughts on these two papers? I'll
1: start. Uh, oh, Jeff, are you going Jeff? Jeff is making.
0: Well, I'm trying to think if I want to
1: start or have the last word. Um, no, uh, uh, I'll, let, I'll start. Uh, I, w- I wanted to say that I think both of these papers approach, um, are a kind of implementation of something that I've long thought. Um, uh, I've long thought this. This goes to the relational contracting point. Um, with respect to marriage and and people's relationships with each other, but it's also true of, of regulation and industry and that is um, it's a it's a, a failing as the Austrian economist would point out to be always searching for equilibrium solution the, the idea that there is going to be a best regulation or a sort of static kind of best um, condition uh, is almost certainly flawed. The best thing we can hope for perhaps is a ongoing evolution of regulation um, that despite the potential costs, the the certainty costs that we talked about before, um, there's a lot more to be gained by having a a well-governed process for change where change is an expected part of the process. Because I I think the idea, again, this sort of aiming for some some optimal is just is so divorced from reality, it, it's so impossible given the limitations of knowledge um, that we, run, we, we really run into a lot of problems with that mindset. And fundamentally, if there, was something, you know, if there were some one overarching point, I would say would be the most important thing to gain from, from this is to say um, the optimal regulatory regime is one that constantly changes. Not one that comes closest to achieving some, you know, theoretical optimum. If we could kind of build change into the regulatory process, understand that that's the best we can hope for. I, I think regulation in general could improve across a number of dimensions, and and it would be enormously
0: salutary. And it calls to mind uh, the, the great quote, not just Hayek and, and and Austrian economics, but the great quote from Edmund Burke: uh, "We all we must all obey the great law of change. It's the most powerful law of nature, and perhaps." Uh, and the means, perhaps, of its conservation. Uh, I didn't know that offhand. I just looked it up. Uh, Gus, any closing thoughts? Uh, Yeah, I'd uh,
2: uh, just like to say thank you to uh, uh, Adam and Jennifer and uh, uh, the center. Um, Jeff and I presented these papers uh, way back, uh, was that December last year, November? Yeah. Uh, It's almost a year ago. And Uh, The first go around for the um, first paper we uh, uh, discussed, I think the title of that paper was just dynamic regulation. Um, And it was basically about different ways that regulation can be written to change dynamically. And uh, it was a pretty crummy paper, uh, thinking back on it. I don't know if Adam uh, disagrees, but I I, I think it was a pretty crummy paper. And over the course of uh, the round table, uh, at some point um, I uh, wrote down in my notes uh, um, regulation as a discovery process and circled it three or four times as, okay, this is the title. This is what you're really writing about. And we completely reworked the paper. Of course, half the text is still the same, but uh, we, changed, we changed the title and the introduction. Um, and it's a much better paper now as a, a result. Um, and, uh, the, the process and engagement really has, uh, benefited, uh, uh my own thinking and, uh, the final product, I think. So, uh, I just want to say thank you, uh, for, uh, helping us to produce a higher quality product.
0: Well, I, I definitely don't remember it from, from last winter. It's funny. I think when we started the show, I said last spring and after I said, I realized, wait a second, no, it has been that long. This was supposed to be a conference in the spring. I don't remember. I don't remember the paper being uh, bad at the time. I certainly don't. But I, I will say, in in reading the the revised versions, I was just really struck by what an interesting, again, interesting and challenging insights these are. I think these are two great papers, and we're really proud that we've been able to 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 help uh, encourage you and, and and create discussion around it as you thought your way through. So I'd encourage our listeners all to to look up these papers on the Gray Center's website in the working papers series the titles are regulation as partnership and uh, regulation as a discovery process we're so grateful to both of you for writing these papers jennifer joining us today and to our listeners for joining us today please tune in for the other episodes of this series of discussions on papers arising from our roundtable on technology and regulation and please join us for other future episodes of arbitrary and capricious